0: Well, good morning everyone. It's great to see you. I hope you are feeling more encouraged with the uh, warm and beautiful weather and the uh, prospect of summer coming, which we're going to have just a just a beautiful summer. We trust that you will continue to be with us on Sundays and if you're watching on live stream, we pray that you will be able to join us soon, that you can get comfortable and uh, that we can see God's house filling up again. It's really been a delight to see uh, the number of folks that are coming out and to have our hearts encouraged together. Uh, two quick announcements, and then Kristen Care is going to make an announcement related to uh, opening of child care uh, in the month of June. So the young adult gathering we had last Sunday night, we've got a couple young couples that are organizing that ministry. We had 27 young adults. And, isn't that awesome? So that's future church okay if we don't have a young adult group we don't have a future church it's just old people like oh i'm serious i was getting my shadow this morning and i was thinking the thompsons had a grandbaby so they're sitting all the way in the back then i thought man we're getting i remember meeting people that were grandparents before becoming a grandparent okay So uh, just real encouraging. And if you know young adults that might be interested in coming to that ministry, I would really encourage you to reach out to them and say, hey, our church is providing something like that. If you're looking for a place to fellowship with uh, people that aren't doing crazy things, but trying to love God together and be an encouragement to one another, really want to encourage you to uh, consider inviting a friend. Right after the service today, we have a newcomer's luncheon. Newcomers has an interesting definition because of COVID, et cetera. So we're basically saying, if you've never come to a newcomer's luncheon, You probably should come today, okay? So uh, I think you just go out and go to the left towards the back, and uh, Pastor James will be back there, and we'll give you direction. And just going to give you an intro to the church, introduce you to some of the elders from the church, and uh, just try to create a path for you to uh, get more involved in what God is doing here at the chapel. All right, Kristen, I'm going to ask you to come. I told Kristen, I said, bring your son up and then pinch him, and then everybody will know why we need nursery. (laughs)
1: He's my pawn this morning. Good morning. I'm Kristen Kiera. Um, I coordinate the child care for Sunday morning services. So prior to COVID, for the duration of the entire service, we provide child care for six months all the way up through five years old, you know, kindergarten, they move up towards your new church program. Um, and since COVID, we have not had either of our child care rooms open on Sunday mornings, but we are hoping to change that very soon. Um, and our plan is to open up a modified one room for about ages two to four. For. We need volunteers though. Um, right now I have one other volunteer and myself. Um, so we are looking for teenage helpers and adult volunteers to staff that room on Sunday mornings. The goal is to have about a six to eight week rotation. So it's really not very burdensome on you. You're only on it every six to eight weeks does not require any advanced preparation in any way. You just show up on Sunday morning, serve in the room, and then that kind of commitment is fulfilled uh, for that day of your rotation. So if you are interested, you can talk to me after the service. I usually sit in that back corner. Um, or you can email me as well. I know some of the church emails that have gone out, my contact is in there as well. But I, mean, I would encourage you, oftentimes when we make Please, about childcare helpers. Uh, the solution that people often, in a positive way, try to give me is well, just have the moms do it. Which is great, and we do have a lot of mom volunteers, um, but moms of young children are typically our most unreliable volunteers, and I say that, like, including myself, because we have small children that are very unpredictable. Um, And sometimes getting out on a Sunday morning on time, which is what we need our volunteers to be, is a challenge. So if you are someone who is maybe past that stage in life and would love spending time with some really cute little kids on a Sunday... Sunday morning. Uh, we would love to have you help us. Uh, so again, you can talk to me. I'll be in the back there, um, or you can reach out to me via email, but we need adult volunteers and teenage helpers. So if you are fall in one of those categories, please reach out and let me know. Thank you. Thank you.
0: All right. So seriously, do not let those that are helping in that ministry do it alone, okay? Uh, it just To me, this is a simple one to step up and say, I can help out with that. So please don't require of us announcing repeatedly something that should happen very, very quickly. Okay? So just to take it as an opportunity to serve one another. As I was driving here this morning and as I was driving here last Sunday morning, I observed three things. I saw large groups of motorcycles, and and I'm into that crowd, okay? I saw this morning... Volkswagens in a large group going by, and then I saw, I think it was last Sunday morning, about 40 kayak people in a parking lot. I knew they were kayak people because they had kayaks on top of their cars. (laughs) Pretty smart, right? And I thought about what is bringing them together, okay? And all of those things, I'm into cars, I'm into kayaking, and I'm into uh, motorcycling, okay? There's nothing wrong with any of those things, But if you make them ultimate, they will let you down. We have been called by God to gather together for a higher calling, for a more glorious and enduring purpose. And the text that came to my mind this morning was, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found that treasure, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold everything he had. And bought that field. Folks, we have the joy today together of treasuring Christ in song and in spoken word. And that is a treasure that the Bible tells us will never fade away. Uh, I'm into cars and they rust and break and frustrate. Jesus never changes and Jesus never fails. So I hope that as we sing this morning, you will sing... With a greater joy, we have pleasure in other things, but we have a greater joy in Christ that outshines and outlasts everything. And I hope that as we sing together, we will, with a a deep degree of gratitude and passion, pour our hearts out to God this morning and worship together. Would you stand with me? Father, as we come this morning, we have come not for a trivial purpose, but for a purpose that calls for everything from us, to sell everything and buy that field. So, Lord, this morning, for the one that is wrestling with what it means to own and know Christ, as James spoke about him so beautifully last Sunday, as the one who stands in our place and dies for us. And then through the resurrection text that Doug will preach this morning, puts the exclamation on the fact that he is able, capable to save and to secure all who believe and trust in him. So Lord, my prayer this morning is that you would make us aware of our sinfulness so that we can see the glory of forgiveness through Christ. So Holy Spirit, please, please meet us as we sing together. I pray in Jesus' name and for his glory and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's worship.
2: from the highest throne to the earth below. You lay down your life for the likes of us. Great is the like the long... All Bye. So I'll stand. cross and carried the cross from my shame my sin weighed upon your shoulders my soul now to stay so what can I say so what can I say and what can I do For this heart, oh God. Completely to you. Yes, Lord, we give our hearts to you. So I'll walk. So I'll walk upon salvation. salvation. I declare your promise My soul now to stay
3: So what can I say?
2: So what can I say? And what can I do? We offer our hearts We we'll offer this heart what can I say? So what can I say? And what can I do? We offer our hearts. But offer this heart, oh God. the one who gave it all. And I'll stand my soul, Lord, to you surrendered all. And I am is your. So I'll stand. do yeah. yeah. Can I do? But offer this heart, oh God. Yes, we offer our hearts completely to you. So, what can I say? So, what can I? But offer this heart of oh God completely to you.
3: Let's sing it one more time. So What can I say? So, what can I say?
2: And what can I do? When we come to the altar. Blood of Jesus Christ. See, leave behind your regrets. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today, come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling, bring your sorrows. Sorrows and trade them for joy, and from the ashes a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar, the Father. the precious blood of Jesus Christ. will oh, come to the altar. The Father's Savior, isn't he wonderful? Oh, what a Savior
3: Lord, we give you praise this morning and glory and honor. Thank you for saving us, redeeming us. We do bow down this morning. We do give our hearts to you this morning. So what can I say? What can I do but offer this heart, oh God, completely to you? May that be true of us this morning as we sing and as we hear your word, God. We thank you for redeeming us. We thank you for bearing the cross, our cross. And we do wait for the crown, Lord, and we see you face to face and your return first. Lord, we know this morning we're going to hear about living our faith out loud of telling the world of the treasure we found. And like Pastor Tim mentioned, if you knew this treasure was in this field, you'd buy that whole field and you'd tell the whole world. God, thank you for this morning of worship. We ask now you'd help us to continue to worship as we hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated.
4: Amen. Well, welcome to the chapel. It's great to have you here. Isn't it wonderful to sing together? Yes. Wow, I just, and that last statement, tell the world of this treasure that you found. How perfect with uh, the message today. Well, folks, this brings us, junior. ah, thank you, junior church. Um, so that would be children, okay, through kindergarten through third grade can be dismissed to the back. And we, they have a delightful program for you back there. More delightful than what you'd get in here, let me tell you that much. Uh, At least more interesting than you'd get in here. Okay. Well, this brings us to our last message on the Gospel of Mark, and it's been a wonderful journey together. Um, Next week, we're going to have kind of a transitional week uh, where Tim is going to be leading us out um, on missions, actually. So we're really excited about that and presenting one of our missionaries to you via Zoom. Um, And then we're going to be doing, through the rest of the summer, uh, we're going to be going back to the the Old Testament and looking at uh, six messages from the book of Daniel and then six messages from the book of Malachi. So we thought we'd jump into the prophets for a little period of time. And that'll pretty much run us right up to the fall. And we'll be ready to start a new series at that point. Well, when I was a kid... Did you ever have somebody tell you a shaggy dog story? Do, do you guys know that term? Yes. Okay. Sometimes my wife and I were talking about. My wife had never heard that term before. Yeah. And that, you, Pam, you've never heard that either. Okay. Look it up on the internet. Check it out. Okay. I'm j- just saying. This was my definition of a shaggy dog story. It was they would take you through this story and they would wind you through it. They'd spin all this yarn. And then you get to the end and it would either be anticlimactic or it wouldn't end. It would just kind of drop and dangle there at the end. It kind of bothered me, to be honest with you. I was online this week. Uh, Barnes & Nobles has this monthly um, newsletter. And they had one that, went, that came out in December of 2016 that said, six famous novels that don't have an ending. And they purposely lead you to the very end of the book and then purposely the author doesn't quite finish everything. And, it, and it's all part of the rhetorical strategy. Authors do that sometimes. That's not something that only happens though, folks, in contemporary, with contemporary novels. In the ancient world, you would often find something very similar. Did you ever wonder how the book of Jonah ended? I mean, you know what I mean? You have this, you finally get to the end. Nineveh has been saved, and God's having this discussion with Jonah, and he's pleading with Jonah, but we never find out how Jonah responds. And purposely, the author leads us to this ending, and then just kind of drops it, and in the case of Jonah, because it's being turned back on the audience or the reader. It's a brilliant way to bring us as readers and audience right into the story and then say, so how will you end the story? Do you see? It's a brilliant way to communicate. And I would argue that that's what we have happening here in the end of Mark's gospel. Now, I'm going to talk to you about something and I got to be delicate. I got to be careful with this. So I, you know, it's, it could be a minefield. So I don't, I don't want to rattle anybody in any way. But, but if like I've got the NIV before me, maybe you have the ESV or the New American. You may have a whole, I don't know what you have. But like in my NIV, when you get to the end of Mark chapter Mark 16, it ends in verse eight, and then verses nine and following. I have, it's all in italics, kind of broken off to its side. And I have something that says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not include verses 9 to 20. Do, do you have that in the back of yours? St- yeah, I mean, if you have a contemporary version, they're going to put some note there. And you, so you look at that, and and and, and sometimes that can kind of make people nervous. They're saying, whoa, so does Mark end in verse 8? Or do you include those last 12 verses? Does this happen often in the New Testament? The answer to that is no, it doesn't. Two times in the entire New Testament do you find a 12-verse section that some scholars debate, was that there in the original, or is it maybe a true story that was just kind of put in by a later scribe and found its way into some of the manuscripts? You find this at the end of John chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, 11. That's 12 verses. And you find it here at the end of Mark chapter 16. So, I'm going to give you like a really three-minute overview of what's called textual criticism. Like, I don't even know why I'm doing it, but I'm going to do it. Okay? Just so you know what happens. Like, how do we actually get our English text? Well, there was an original text. Paul sat down and wrote. Mark sat down and wrote the Gospel of Mark. And we're actually told that he got a lot of that information directly from Peter, from one of the early church fathers, a guy by the name of Papias. And Mark is writing about 20, 25 years after Christ dies. Christ dies in 30, around 55, Mark is actually writing the Gospel of Mark. So you have the original text, and then what they did is they started copying those texts because texts get old. And initially, they, they was not we call this a book form or a codex. They just had it on scrolls, and they got old. And so somebody would copy that, and then they'd make multiple copies of that. And you can find over 5,300 Greek manuscripts of our New Testament. We have a multiplicity of manuscripts. And when you look at all that, you go, yeah, but are there all kinds of differences? 99% of it is absolutely really unquestioned. And there's, there's a percentage where scholars develop what they call textual criticism. And and what what they tend to do, I don't even know if I I didn't didn't put it on here, what they tend to do is look at two things. They look at all the manuscripts that have been written on that particular book. They look specifically at the ones that are early, because they think the earlier the better, and then they look at how those manuscripts are distributed. I mean, do you find it in in, in the West and in the East? and, And so there's a whole science that goes into looking at the manuscripts. And the other thing they do is, they go and they say, okay, okay. If Paul wrote that, or if Luke wrote this, or if Mark, is that consistent with what they write elsewhere? Is that their style of writing? And one of the things you'll find when you come to Mark Mark chapter 16, and I know I've worked through the Greek of Mark's gospel. When you come to Mark chapter 16... Verses 9 and following, the style of the writing is different than the style of the first 16 chapters. Now, are you saying then that that stuff isn't true at the end? I'm not saying that at all. One of the things that you can find is that every verse in Mark 16, verses 9 to 20, I should have thrown verse 16 in there too, sorry, forgot, is paralleled in some way. Elsewhere in the New Testament. Okay? So it's like, well then, we're losing all this. No, we're not. We're not. And, and, and what happens is, manuscripts are copied, and at some point, we have what we call a critical text, where somebody looks at all those manuscripts, and they try to write down what they think the original Greek was, based on the science of what's called, and sometimes in art, called textual criticism. And they come up with a Greek critical text. And we've had several of them over the last couple hundred years. And then from there, English translate a, a, a translation is actually taken from that Greek critical text. And so you'll find in some Greek critical text, they'll say when you get to the end of Mark 16, although this stuff was true, authentic, but probably not directly written by Mark. And then that finds its way into our English translations. So I say all that to say our scripture is reliable. No truth teaching of the scripture. No doctrine is affected by this one way or the other. And this particular section in Mark, as you can see, has parallels throughout the New Testament. Do you see? And I I think if I had to guess what happened, I think a later scribe came along. And frankly, when he read the end of verse 8, he said to himself, but the story didn't end there. The women did go, and they did talk to the disciples, and the disciples came and found an empty tomb, and Jesus appeared to them, and then he met with them, and then he was ascending. You know, right? All that stuff. And I think a, a later scribe was just merely finishing out the story. However, I think he was missing what Mark Wanted to teach us. Because I think what Mark wanted to teach us is. What will you do. With the truth. Of the resurrected Lord. Do you see? So that's how I want to proceed. I hope I haven't like thoroughly confused you. And folks. You can rest assured in the accuracy of the text that we have before us. So only two passages of significance. This one. And the one in John. Do you remember, Tim was, maybe you don't remember this, Tim was speaking a couple weeks ago. And remember he used the expression, this is a sandwich effect. Where you talk about Peter, and then you talked about Jesus, and then you talked about Peter again. I would argue you have a sandwich effect here again. You're going to, we're going to get introduced to some women. And then we're going to pop off and we're going to talk about Joseph of Arimathea. And then we're going to come back and talk about the women again. And you're going to see some similarities and some differences between the women and Joseph of Arimathea. And then purposely, the book is going to end by Mark. Does Mark know how the story ended? Well, yeah, he's taken all of his stuff from Peter. It's been 25 years. Of course he does. And his audience does too. But he purposely holds it back just enough to turn it back on you. Watch what he does. Mark chapter fifteen. I want to go ahead and begin i don 't know if you can see this real well um, so this this is a, a model of, of of the first century, Jerusalem, the temple complex and and it 's believed by most scholars that when you when you come right outside of the uh, city itself. If you can see where the little hill is, that is probably where Christ would have been crucified. And we don't know this for sure, but it's very possible that that Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was just off to the right, maybe about 60 yards from that cross, roughly. Okay. So I'm going to leave that up as we kind of talk our way through this story. Chapter 15, verse 40. Listen to what happens. And folks, just be careful. I want you to enter into this story and really, let, let's get out. But you're going to find out at the end, Mark's turning it back on us. He's coming to us. He's coming back to us. So just watch what he does. Verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James the Younger and, and of Joseph. Or probably better, uh, Joseph. Um, but anyway. Uh, and, and Salome in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had, had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So James had preached last week on the cross of Christ, and one of the things that, that Mark wants you to know right up front is there was a lot of women there. And some of those women were for Christ, some of them weren't. They were just there watching what was going on. But in that large group of women, there were clear female followers of Christ. Women who had ministered to Christ throughout his ministry provided meals. I mean, how would guys ever live without somebody providing meals for them? You know what I'm saying? Right? I mean, like, you start reading, you go, like, I get that one. It makes a lot of sense to me. But, and, and serving and helping and uh, all the stuff, all those kinds of things, which was really unusual for a rabbi in the first century to do. But Jesus embraced all, men and women. There was nobody excluded. And so we read here in particular that there's there's a host of women there that had followed him in Galilee, and three are looked at in particular. Mary Magdalene, we don't know a lot about her. We know that uh, demons were cast out of her. And then the second Mary, we're not sure exactly who she is. Mary, the mother of these two guys. Now, here's what's interesting. Those two guys are mentioned one other time in Mark's gospel, back in Mark chapter 6. And they're two of Jesus's half brothers. So, some scholars argue that the second Mary is Mary, the mother of Jesus, but she's being described in a little bit more of a distant way. I lean, it's a minority view, but I lean more toward that position. If it's not her, I don't know who she is. Okay? I don't know. So, But you have you have Mary Magdalene, the second Mary, and then Salome, probably the mother of two of the disciples, James and John. And what Mark does is he purposely tells us that these women are watching from afar. It doesn't mean they don't get closer at some point in the crucifixion. They are passionate. They love Christ. The idea there is they're observing intently from a distance because they love the Lord and they want to move as close to him as quickly as they can, but they're not sure exactly when to do that. So you're introduced to these ladies who are a little bit of a distance. And now we're going to be introduced to Joseph of Arimathea. Look at what he does. Think for just a moment. It's just a chapter back that you had all of the Sanhedrin, the council, chief priests, all the leading officials of Judaism meeting together, condemning Christ in the midst of all that the high priest said, so tell me, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you ain't seen nothing yet paraphrase he says wait till you see him because he's at the right hand of the father and he's coming back so you know that, that, that just riled them all and it says they all rallied around and said condemn him do you know who joseph is he's a prominent member of this group look what the text says look at verse 42 it was the preparation day. If you remember, they would often figure their days from sunset to sunset. And so here it is: Friday afternoon, Friday night, sunset. It's Sabbath, and the Jews had a custom. You can read back back in Deuteronomy 21. You can read about it in other Jewish literature that they wanted. To, if somebody died, they wanted to get them in 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 the tomb before before nightfall, and certainly before the end of that day, and certainly before a Sabbath. So it says, it was preparation day. That is the day before Sabbath. So it was Friday afternoon, getting real close to Friday night. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, he wasn't just like some guy that slipped in the back. He was one of the lead guys when you would get together and say, hey, what do you think we should do? Joseph of Arimathea, what do you think we should do? Do you see? He was that significant. Now, was he at that prior meeting when they condemned Christ? I don't know. You know, maybe maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. text doesn't tell us. All I know is everything that the council had done troubled him. And so here he is, a prominent member of that council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. The other gospel writers tell us he was a disciple of Christ, but a secret one because he feared the Jewish council. You know what I love about this text? Here is a guy who lived in the shadows. Do you ever find yourself in a position where you ought to speak up for Christ in a setting and fear just overcomes you? Now, now we, we, we've all done it, right? When you you've gone away and saying, nuts, I should have said something. Lord, I'm sorry. Ugh, I don't know what, right? I mean, we all have those experiences. I wonder how many of those this guy had. How many times his soul was probably turning inside of him saying, what am I doing? I believe Jesus is Messiah. I don't understand all what's going on here, but I believe he's the Messiah. I believe he's the one that's going to bring in the kingdom somehow. But in this moment, Joseph comes out of the shadows. And here's what's amazing to me. There is no evidence that he thought Jesus was going to resurrect from the grave. Zero. So he is putting everything on the line for a Messiah who is dead. Do you see that? I mean, that's courage like off the charts. What will happen to him with the Jewish council? What will happen to him with Pilate? Because Jesus is being killed as an enemy of the state, not just of the Jewish people. Joseph doesn't ultimately care. Well, I'm sure he cares, but he cares about something more. So look at what he does. He went boldly. I love that. He doesn't go sheepishly. He doesn't slither in before Pilate. He doesn't ask Pilate's assistant's assistant assistant. No, no. He goes boldly to Pilate, and he asks for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, because, as you probably know, when they crucify people, they like to prolong it. the Romans do. Right? The longer it is, the more people can say, that's what happens if you're an enemy of Rome. Mess with us, that's what happens. So he's a, he's a little surprised to hear it. So he sa- sa- summons the centurion. Who is the one that makes the ultimate declaration, doesn't he? Truly. I mean, Jesus hasn't risen. Jesus has just died, and all the centurion can say is, truly, this was the Son of God. Do you know how the Gospel of Mark begins? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the one who declares that is the centurion. Anyway, Pilate calls this guy in, summoning the centurion. He asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so... He gave the body to Joseph. Now, folks, there's not much time. What, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon? Maybe pushing on 5, 6 o'clock? You know, it's getting dark. You got to do this stuff quickly. So G, jo, Joseph brought some linen, I'm sorry, bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and then placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So he acts quickly. And we know from other accounts that Nicodemus is working with him. He probably has some of his servants helping him. All that kind of stuff goes on. But at the end of the day, Joseph is the guy that's behind all this. Whatever it's going to... He'll pay for the linens. He'll pay the price with the Sanhedrin. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's going to boldly go and he's going to just say, I'm doing this Because I believe in Jesus. I don't understand. But I believe and I want to honor him. And he wraps the body. And he takes his own tomb. That no one has ever been laid on before. We know from one of the other gospel accounts. And he's going to lay Jesus down there. Notice how the chapter ends. Verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So these women love Jesus. Can you see that? They're watching Jesus from a distance. Joseph goes, gets the body. They go over and put in the tomb. And these women go and they are right there and they can see exactly where Jesus has been placed. And then they take this big stone which could weigh 2,000 to 3,000 pounds. And these servants of Joseph of Arimathea, they push that thing in front of the entrance and it's sealed. And the women are watching. Now, we know from the other accounts, when they would put perfume or aroma on on a corpse, it wasn't to preserve the corpse, it was to protect from the stench. And we know Joseph did, it doesn't say in this text, we know from the other text, Joseph did, but these women want to do the same thing for Jesus on on Easter Sunday. Because they want to honor him anyway. I mean, how do you honor him? you, you do what you can. They, they weren't, Were they going to the tomb because they were saying, praise the Lord, he's going to be resurrected? No, they thought he was dead for good. The women are watching. Joseph step, steps forward at great cost. The women see. And now it all, it's all about the women in chapter 16. Look at what it says. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. You know what I find to be really ironic? They weren't going to be able to anoint his body with those spices, were they? Do you remember a couple chapters back when another Mary anointed Jesus, especially when he was living, Remember, she poured the ointment on him. And, and, and Jesus said, she's doing this in preparation for my death. Basically, he's saying is, ladies, this is the only shot you get at me. <laughs> did, did, did you see? Right? Right? Uh, because this is it. Because when these ladies came, it was too late. So they bought spices so they might anoint his body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, it's Sunday. They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, because they had two problems here. The first problem was, you got three women, and you got a 3,000-pound stone. You know? I mean, that's, not, that, you know, so there, you can see, like, hey, what about the stone? I didn't think
1: about that one.
4: What are we going to do about the stone? Oh, man, maybe there will be some gardeners around or something. I don't know. I don't know what they thought. But but they picked up on the fact that this is going to be a little bit of an issue. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, (laughs) had been rolled away. So they're going like, what do you you think? I don't know. You know, know, maybe you get... I don't know what they were saying, but they're they're thinking about whatever. And they come and they go like, Whoa! That stone was in front of there when we left last time. And now it's rolled away. And it wasn't so that Jesus could get out. It was so that we could go in and see that he wasn't there anymore. Right? So problem one is taken care of. Now they're thinking we're going to go in. We're going to anoint his body. And so you have here just a picture of the way it would have looked like. In antiquity, if you look there on the left, that this is just a sketch from an artist. You can see there's the tomb entrance. And then when you would often go in and you would have niches, sl- these slabs, niches. The, and You would go in and, and they would lay the body down there for an extended period of time. And then when the flesh would rot all off, they'd come back sometimes a year later. And they would take just the bones and they'd either put it in, into a, what's called a, like a bone box... Or sometimes they had these holes actually in there, and they just literally pushed the bones in there. And you can see why people talked about people getting gathered to their fathers. I mean, it just kind of all made sense because they would put these bones together. But anyway, they would they would go in and they would lay the body on that on, on that, as my wife says, I call it a niche. In the French, it's niche. So I'm just 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 <laughs> so we're good on that, honey. All right. So on the niche or niche, whatever you want to call it, but th- those stone slabs. you would would find them putting the body. So when they came, they would have seen something like on the right there. That huge rock. It's rolled away. Here's where it really gets tense for these ladies when they go inside. Verse verse four. I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse five. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Would you be? I mean, I mean, they're going like, "Hey, well, the rocks away," and then they go in and, "Hi, who is? <laughs> <laughs> <Wait. sighs> I mean, what's going through your head? Like, where's the body? Somebody take the body. What? Who is this guy? Like, he's in white. So it looks angelic to me. Like, I mean, it, it was. I mean, just try to think about all that." Do you ever, I mean, do you ever have somebody scare you when you come around a corner? Rah! You know, you are like, right? I think that's kind of what they're like. They're like, like, right? Same kind of thing, if you think about it. Something like that. So they see this young man dressed in a white tomb, and, and the man speaks, the angel speaks. Look at what he says. Don't be alarmed. That's easy for him to say. Okay. But you know what's fascinating? When you read the other gospel accounts, God always moves toward his people to relieve their fear. But the soldiers, in Matthew's account, the soldiers, the angel does nothing to relieve their fear. Nothing. They just run. And so, women who are alarmed, the first words out of this angel's mouth is, you don't have to be alarmed. Yes, you're standing in the presence of an angel. Yes, the body's gone. But you don't have to be alarmed. Here's why. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. And they, can, How would they have responded there? I don't know. Maybe they'd be going like, yeah, okay. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. You ladies saw the body taken in and laid there. And you saw the, the stone rolled back. You knew it was there. But he's gone. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. And Tim mentioned this also the other week. But I thought it was so good. Isn't that so special? That, that the one disciple who not only fled, but just repeatedly denied Jesus. Jesus says, when you go... Make sure Peter's included there because I got something for that guy, okay? Anyway, go and tell his disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You go back to Mark chapter 14, Jesus specifically tells them, guys, you're going to deny me, you're going to run, you're going to flee, all those things are going to happen, but I am going before you to Galilee. I'm not finished with you. And from there, I will send you out to reach the world. He's already promised it. And this angel is saying, the resurrection is a reality, Christ's promise of the furtherance of his kingdom through his people is a sure promise. It's a reality. It's going to happen. Ladies, the first ones to witness the empty tomb, you get to be part of all that. So so go and tell. Now, here's what troubles us is verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. You know the last time that word "fled" is used? When the disciples fled. So, so you, know, you begin reading this, you're saying, like, "Oh, that doesn't sound real good." And then he ends by saying this: "They said nothing to anyone. Because they were afraid. And then Matthew, I mean, then Mark puts down his pen, quill, and he's done. And you, you, as the people to whom Mark was writing this the first time, would have said, No, wait a second. We know, Matthew will tell us, they went from the tomb both amazed, afraid, and joyful at the same time. And they did tell Peter and the disciples, didn't they? So Mark is specifically telling us that initially, their initial response was crippling fear. And at least initially, they fled like the disciples and didn't initially tell the disciples. And then he stops. And you go, Mark, that seems like a really strange ending. What happens to you as the reader? You read that and you say to yourself, what are they, nuts? Jesus is resurrected. Go and be part of all this for heaven's sakes. Or does Mark want you to ask you as the reader, what about you? You've read the whole story. You know how it ends. You know what they do after this. It's not a shocker when you read this the way it was for them when they first experienced it because you've known this for 25 years. What have you done with the reality of the resurrection? Something interesting to me. When you think of Mark's gospel as a whole, you have on the one hand the question being asked again and again and again, who is this? Did you notice that working through Mark's gospel? I mean, again and again and again. So I've listed the people of Capernaum, religious leaders, disciples, Jesus' hometown, Herod, I mean, everybody's going like, who is this? And the centurion at the cross says, he's the son of God. And he didn't even know he was going to resurrect And at the same time, running through Mark's gospel, you have this, shh, more than any of the other gospel writers. Mark has these accounts where Jesus does a miracle, and then Jesus says, don't tell anybody. You come to the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, they're with Jesus, they see all the glory, and they go, oh, this is incredible, wait to. Jesus says, don't tell anybody until after I've resurrected, Why? Because he doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be a Messiah. You cannot understand Messiah for who he is if you don't understand death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You can't. And so he's constantly holding them back. No, no, that's not what I mean by Messiah. No, no, I don't mean that either. No, that, yeah, I, I do miracles, but don't think I'm just a lucky charm. No, no, no. You, you see? All the way through the gospel, shh. And then you come to 16.8 and the text says, go tell! Cut loose! Don't hold back! This is the story and it's ours. So I would argue that Mark ends his book telling us as the readers this. To courageously live out our faith Out loud. Because Jesus has risen victoriously from the dead. The resurrection is not, well, you know, it's just a really pleasant story. It makes me feel good. No, it's a reality that has literally changed the world. If Christ never resurrected, you could never be guaranteed or know that you could be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven when you die. The resurrection is God saying, death and sin will no longer have power over those that trust my my beloved son. And when you fall before Christ and you say, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, and one fell swoop, you are brought into the kingdom of God and saved. The resurrection is foundational to our faith. With it, we have nothing. We are lost. But it's true. And isn't it wonderful that the first witnesses were women? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But you know, know, even more so in the first century, because the witness of a woman in a court setting was not considered nearly as reliable as that of, of, of a man. Now, I'm not saying I believe that at all. I'm just telling you what they said, what they believed. But the gospel cuts through all that because God doesn't think that way. So he chooses women to be the first ones to witness the empty tomb. Do you see? No. Yeah, I figured Sandy would like that one. So, yeah, that's right. But so the reality of the resurrection, it's foundational to our lives. But it's true, brothers and sisters. And if you don't know Christ, it's true. The evidence for the resurrection is absolutely overwhelming. 500 people saw Christ. People say, wow, that was a hallucination. Man, is that ever a miracle? 500 people all hallucinating at the same time? That's incredible. You know, I mean, just again and again, it's a reality, it's true. The promise of Christ's ongoing kingdom plan is certain. He is going to meet in Galilee. He's going to commission his guys. He's going to teach his guys. He's going to ascend. And, and the church is going to grow, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. The only question is do the women want to be part of that? There's always the possibility of failure through fear for those who claim to be followers of Christ. Christ is risen. The kingdom's going on. The point is, where will we find ourselves in there? That's the point. In this text, this text calls us to be men and women who live our faith out loud. I'm going to mention one other thing, and then I'll wrap it up because I'm watching my time. I, really, I am really watching my time, trying to. For the disciples... All their failure was temporary. Mark's audience know that the women ultimately went. He knows that. He's trying to turn it back on us. Do you get so fear-driven sometimes that you don't tell, that you're not part of what God is doing by living your faith out loud? The women ultimately obeyed. Peter and the disciples who had also fled ultimately would be God's mouthpiece to get the gospel out on Pentecost. John Mark maybe he was, I think he probably was, we don't know for sure, but he was probably the guy who ran remember remember when they came to arrest Christ and you got this guy that runs away uh, plumb naked. You know, through the woods, you know, I mean, anyway, pretty embarrassing stuff. But I think that's Mark, and it says he fled away. And Mark is going to have other problems through his ministry. He's going to go on a missionary journey with Paul, and it's not going to go so well. And he's going to say, I'm going home. Halfway through the trip. Paul's going, you can't do this, and I'm done, and he just goes. So much so that on their second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are ready to go, and Barnabas said, let's take John Mark, the writer of the gospel of Mark, with us. And Paul says, not on your life. That guy is not going with us again. We can't have a failure halfway through the mission trip. It's too important. The mission's too important. So much so that there's a rift between, so Barnabas took Mark, and Paul went with Silas, and they went their separate ways. You know what I love? As you read, The book later books of Paul, when Paul's in prison the first time, he says, Mark greets you. And when you find Paul in Second Timothy shortly before his death in his second Roman imprisonment, he says, Send John Mark with you, for he's profitable to me for the ministry. And this same guy gets to write a whole gospel. So none of their failures were permanent. The women, the disciples, Peter, even John, Mark. So maybe you sit here today and you say, man, Finkbeiner, boych." Sh- I'm a follower of Christ. I've trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. But my- oh, If I told you this story, you just... You know what I know? There is always hope in Jesus Christ. His spirit can always take you and transform you. If you will come before him and say, I'm not much, but you got me, all of me, use me however you see fit. And he will. He will. So that you and I can go out and courageously live out our faith because we believe Christ is the victor over death. And he's the king who's coming back one day. So a book that all the time is saying, shh, until you understand Jesus, shh, until you understand Jesus, shh, until you understand Jesus, now you understand Jesus, go and tell. Don't hold back. Go for it. What's that look like in your life? I'm going to close in prayer, but going to take about 45 seconds and not say a word. It's not because I fainted or anything but I want you to pray individually yourself before God. Maybe you're hearing all this and you're saying, I'm not even on his team. Then this will be the time when you can bow and talk to him and say, God, Jesus died for me and rose for me. I want him to be my Lord and Savior today. And that quickly he'll bring you into the kingdom of God. But for Christians... What does it mean for you to live your faith courageously out loud? Is it with family, neighbors, workplace, with everybody? What does it mean for us to be so overwhelmed with the wonder of Christ that we just can't keep silent? We have to go and tell. Let's pray. Father, if we look at ourselves, we so often see failure. We, we are frustrated by the way we respond to you, by the way we don't trust in you, by the way we disobey you, by the way we're not willing to suffer for you. As believers in our heart of hearts, we want that because we want you. Father, through your spirit, empower us, encourage us, challenge us, move us from the inside out so that we would be men and women who courageously live our faith out loud in every arena and in every setting because Christ is all in all. Father, Father, We thank you that we actually get the privilege to go and tell. In Christ's name I pray, amen.
2: He bled and died Christ will hold me fast Justice has been satisfied
3: this morning that we know that's true your sacrifice for us your death on the cross your going, your willingness has set us free and we have confidence going forward in our lives that we are ultimately set with you hell cannot win if we believe in Jesus Christ as our savior and have confessed our sins bad things can happen, we know that's true but ultimately you win And through you, we also win. God, thank you for your plan. Thank you for the writers, Lord, of your word, for the inspiration, and for even how they're failures, because they're just like us. We thank you for this time we can spend together worshiping and hearing your word. Be with us now as we go into our weeks and help us to live our faith out loud. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.